Good, I'd like to indulge your attention tonight for some thoughts um, on a big topic. The topic is one of the central aspects of Buddhist teaching. In the language of Pali, the topic is called Upadana, which generally is translated as clinging, attachment, grasping, identification. So in, in many ways, uh, this function of mind is one of the big culprits. Yeah? So in the demonology of Buddhism, um, Upadana ranks pretty high. Uh, the word in itself is interesting. Dana, as you all know, is generosity, giving, liberality. Adana means taking, the opposite. Upa is a strengthening prefix, which means taking very hard. You know? So, appropriation, holding on to, attachment, clinging, grasping are often the terms you translators have used uh, in the last century. And on the mental plane, that activity of upadana is probably best described with the psychological notion of identification. Yeah, so, identification. It's an interesting little pattern. Let me see whether I can find an example. So, just imagine that there is a thought popping up. Yeah? So, something pops up and starts playing its number. And at some point, it seems there is a thought, and then it appears that there, this thought is for someone. Yeah? So, because there is a thought, there is somebody there for whom this thought occurs. Yeah. So the thought and the awareness of the thought seems to call into being a subject. And then suddenly something very magic happens, namely the thought that popped up and constellated the subject switches roles. So suddenly it is the subject that has the thought. Yeah. The subject begins to think, oh, here is my thought. Yeah, it's kind of like they change the game. And then the thought goes its way and the subject stays behind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's identification. Now we do that a lot. We identify with the contents of our experience. Sometimes this identification feels good. My thought, my clever thought. And sometimes it feels bad. You know, stupid thought, greedy thought, second-rate thought, compulsive thought. You can kind of give yourself the whole gamut of diagnostic categories. My neurotic thought, my um, damaged thought, my perverted thought, my uh, obsessive thought, the thought that always drags me around, and so forth. So. Some of our identifications we, we pay a high price for. Not all of them make us feel good. In fact, the closer you look, and I trust you, you will have noticed this by now, 
some of the stuff we keep thinking, and I, I don't want to be too personal, but I, if your thoughts resemble my thoughts, then some of them are not original. Okay, <laughs> They are kind of boring and repetitive, rehearsed for 30 years, um, and leave you with fairly predictable results. Sometimes when you have one of these thoughts come around, you know pretty well my, that if I join this guy, if I give him my attention and my energy, I pretty well know where he's going to drag me in two minutes' time. You know, I'm lonely, greedy, I'm depressed, I'm feeling incompetent, lost, I'm confused, I'm just angry. Yeah? So some of the thoughts, when they kind of come up, and show their faces, you know pretty well if you board that train where it's going to take you. So identification is a risky business, but unfortunately we do lots of it. You know, it goes quick. It doesn't say, uh, like many of the things in Buddhist teaching, uh, it's tricky. You know, greed and anger are the least of the tricky things. If you get very greedy, it's hard to miss it, you know. Others generally may notice it earlier, but, <laughs> but even you will notice if you reach a certain threshold level, you know, even you will notice that you're kind of goggle-eyed or something has happened with you. All the meters are in the red. You know? If you're angry, the same. same you know, at some point, it's painful enough. You know, the scared looks in your environment, the sudden poignant silences after your what you felt was a justified, passionate statement. But, uh, yeah. The pale faces of your table mates or things like that. You know, and suddenly you realize, oh God, <laughs> that loud voice, that's me. Yeah. So you, with greed and anger, generally if the meter is going through the red, we notice. With the third of the uh, mind poisons, what we call ignorance or delusion, Unfortunately, there is no guarantee. You can be utterly deluded and feel pretty well right. Yeah? You can be highly convinced of the rationale of what is an utterly ignorant idea. Unfortunately, there is no guarantee that the sheer intensity of your delusion actually is uh, self-declarative. Delusion does not come with a big sign on its chest saying, I... Now, Akinjano, you're unfortunately in the process of entering the state called delusion. Yeah? <laughs> uh, I can feel pretty justified. I can feel confident in what is an utterly daft idea. Yeah. I don't have a guarantee, like I have with anger and with uh, desire, that the, the sheer intensity of my affliction actually becomes something that I'm aware of. Yeah. So in a way, Buddhist traditions have felt that structurally the affliction of not knowing or of delusion or of ignorance, uh, all one and the same uh, family, sometimes it's called the moha, that refers more to the psychological dimension of it, or sometimes it's called avijja, that refers more to the ontological dimension of it. Um, <coughs> this is the major structural problem. In fact, some of the depictions of the Baba Chakra, the Wheel of Life, show us that um, in the center you have the three animals in the hub. You know, the greed, usually, it's the rooster for his... Uh, 
proverbial enthusiasm for procreation, uh, symbol symbolizing greed in this case. A snake uh, stands usually for aversion, hatred, and the pig, poor thing, intelligent mammal as it is, um, stands for delusion. Yeah. So you see that the snake and the rooster come out of the mouth of the pig. Now there's an interesting structural statement here that only under the sway of ignorance can we truly believe that following our greed and following our hatred we can free ourselves so we can be happy. Yeah. In fact there is a 5th century commentary by an Indian fellow called Guna Prabha and he uh, was a Vinaya scholar, uh, monastic discipline scholar and there is a famous text in which he wrote down that at the entry of every monastery a depiction of the wheel of becoming should be and a monk should be there all time so that he could explain this wheel of becoming to visitors and he insisted that in that depiction the snake and the rooster should come out of the mouth of the pig yeah. so we have very early on psychological sophistication indicating that uh, Buddhists have known very early on that the major structural issue in our uh, predicament is the predicament of not knowing and that the predicament of greed and hatred are secondary. That was just a little footnote, but it's an interesting one. Um, so Upadana is part of the... Um, has many facets, but one part of it is um, a habit and one part of it is connected with not knowing. In terms of Buddhist psychology it's a sankara, it's one of the a mental formation, uh, a volitional formation to be more precise and it uh, obviously tries to create happiness. Uh, it's one of the really bad examples of uh, how our attempts to create happiness and avoid pain misfires. In many ways with that little thought example of the thought popping up, then something concluding out of the mere existence that there is a thought, that there must be someone for whom that thought exists. And then that somehow, someone suddenly asserts itself and claims to be not just there because of the thought, but actually claims to be the owner of the thought. And then the thought passing and the owner staying behind, constituting a neat little self-construct, conveniently, vaguely defined, so that it doesn't have to be uh, proven. Yeah. That's the nice thing about self. And if you know anything about self-theory, you know that um, easy as the, world may, the word may roll off your tongue, there are no two psychological schools in agreement of what a self actually is. Uh, we have sociological selves, we have Jungian selves, we have Ericksonian selves, Kahootian selves, we have Hartman selves, and so forth. Yeah, there's tons, if you know anything about this, um, no two psychological schools agree on exactly what constitutes a self. Tragically, Buddhists have begun about 100 years ago to translate the word anatta, which basically means that you don't have an inherent, unchanging core in yourself that constitutes a substance or an essence. They have begun to translate that teaching no longer with the word soul, because the soul has somehow gone out of fashion. 
and they've stead, instead started using the word no self, yeah, as if it was clear what the self is, which complicates our history because now not just do we have to tackle a Buddhist teaching which goes against our grain, we also have a, an equation between a Buddhist teaching and the notion of self which we have no agreement of, yeah, which is the classic definition of a real big-time mess. So. Uh, if you want really confused discourses, look at teachings of no self and no soul in 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 connection with Buddhist in connection with Buddhists trying to convey a message from two and a half thousand years ago, and psychologists trying to understand from a position of their notions of self. Okay, it's getting better. There's enough people who have at least acknowledged uh, the, the model. And uh, there's a number of people who do bring their clarity, both their Buddhist practice and their psychological savvy, to undo some of this. But we're still not quite through. There's still people out there who feel that basically trying to realize the Buddhist teaching of anatta is nothing else but the psychologically insane attempt to uh, justify oceanic, oceanic regression in impunity. And Buddhists, there are still out there who feel that anybody who's speaking of self and developmental self-necessity and stages and gross processes, that such a person only tries to maximize dukkha by insisting that there is such a thing as a self-process. There's still these people out there. Um, so you may uh, have come across some of this. At the heart of this matter, I think is a an understanding of what identification is. The process that we latch onto things, that there's something in us latching onto contents of our experience and identifying these contents with a self, with something unchanging, something permanent, something intact, something substantial, something that is truly mine and I own. Upadana is the very attempt by which we do so. Yeah. It is the sometimes bloody-minded and sometimes helpless attempt to stabilize this word, world, to take it away from its evanescence and make it more solid, more trustworthy, more secure. It is the attempt to identify reliable forms of happiness by differing attitudes and be able to replicate that happiness. Yeah. We all can be happy, but the, the wish is that, to replicate my happiness. I don't just want to be a little bit happy, you know. I want to be happy all the time. I don't just want to feel a little bit good, if I'm honest. I want to be ecstatically feeling great for the rest of my time, eternally, you know, if I'm honest. And um, Upadana is also the attempt to create a solidity in my self-construct. I'd like to be in a world where things are reliable, where I can truly own things, where I can take them with me, where I can metabolize them, appropriate them, make them mine, where my connection is one of ingestion. Yeah. We have that in many forms and Upadana 
describes a pattern of mind that tries to find stability, pleasure and comfort and identity in a world that truly doesn't offer this. Yeah. The poignancy is it doesn't offer this. And Upadana is the attempt to create in a world that doesn't offer this the semblance that it does. And you will by now be aware that this does not have a happy end. Yeah. So let us look at how this image, how this word came about, or how the, the image underpinning this word. The word has two meanings. One is the one I just described. The other one is the meaning of fuel, which is interesting. There's no English word that does the job of meaning fuel and grasping in the same uh, notion. Um, the Indian tradition had a use for that word long before the Buddhists came around. As you may know, the Buddha was an ingenious um, recycler. He recycled much of what we think is Buddhist teaching from other teachings. He used terms, he used notions, and he turned them sometimes on their head, sometimes he did a little spin on them. Very rarely did he actually invent something absolutely new. And the ingenuity is not in his inventiveness, the ingenuity in his rearrangement, in the psychologizing of this terminology that comes from a cosmological Vedic teaching, or that comes from some other religious traditions at this time. Um, so I don't want to drag you into all too many footnotes about the religious heritage of which the Buddha made use of, but Upadana is a classic example of this very process. The word comes from the Vedic ritual process, and there it means to feed the holy fires. Yeah. Upadana is the fuel by which you feed the holy fires. <coughs> you know, uh, God Agni, Agni in Pali is a Vedic uh, deity, and this deity was worshipped both by Brahminical practitioners and by some of the ascetic practitioners who were moving away from the establishment Brahminical practices. And Upadana was the act of feeding the sacrificial fires. So the Buddha took the image of the fires, now no longer symbols of the Vedic deity Agni and sacrificial fires, but now it's the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. And while Upadana was the ritually pure activity called karma in the Vedic tradition, the good stuff you do to feed the sacrificial fires with Upadana, with fuel, thereby accruing merit and good qualities in your life, the Buddha turns all this onto its head. The fires become the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. Karma is the stuff that the gets you in trouble, and upadana is the very specific psychological activity, the fuel by which you do this. Yeah. So we have basically the use of the same terminology uh, with the minus in front of it. Okay. Somewhere buried in the connected discourses is an image that may be explaining this double meaning of fuel and grasping or attachment. And it is described that Upadana has a relationship to renewed becoming. That's how the Buddha usually speaks of rebirth. It's 
referring to the rebirth before you die. Yeah? Punabhava, re-becoming, renewed becoming. It's how moments from con of consciousness continue. Yeah? In Buddhist understanding, this process happens all the time, right now, for example. Uh, you don't have to wait till you die till rebirth takes place. Rebirth takes place a lot before you die. The really interesting part about rebirth is not after you die. It's before you die. That's the interesting part. That's where you can do something. After you die, God knows what's happening. Yeah? But before you die, you can take care of this becoming and this renewed becoming. So the Buddha in his teaching says, the process of renewed becoming hinges in the same way on the quality of grasping and attachment and I identification as the, f the flame of a, of a fire hinges on the fuel that feeds this flame. And now imagine a piece of wood that is a flame, that uh, has a flame. Yeah? So imagine this wood, if you, this flame is fed by the wood, technically it's fed by the gas that exudes from the wood after it reaches a certain heat, but let's not be fussy. So the flame is fed by the piece of wood. At the same time, if you blow into this flame, you can see how the flame sticks to the wood. It attaches to the wood. It holds on to the wood. It grasps that wood. It seems the flame really wants to continue that process. So it's very clear to me that in this image, the double meaning of both fuel and attachment, stickiness, holding on to, is lodged. Yeah? So you have this very powerful image, a piece of wood with a flame, and that flame wants to feed itself on it. It is both fed by it and it does everything that that process continue. If you shake it, it will stick to the wood. Yeah. If you blow into it, it will bend over, but it will try to come back as soon as you stop blowing. So I guess that's the source of this double meaning of the term. Upadana turns up in a number of places in Buddhist teaching most famously in Dependent Arising, as one of the components in there. Um, I promise not to drag you there tonight. Um, it turns up uh, maybe even more famously in the five aspects of our experience, the five khandhas. As you know, one way of the Buddha, Buddhist psychology speaking about what we tend to experience as my self, my world, my personality, is to identify five different categories. And these five different categories are referred to as the five khandhas. Khanda is a strange term. It generally means something that is slightly square. You have a khanda of soldiers. You have a khanda as a heap. You have anything that is cut off and right-angled is a khanda. Shoulders are khandas, for example. Pieces of monastic uh, gear, robes, are made in segments called khandas. So it's a slightly diffuse term. Uh, a platoon of soldiers is called a kanda. Yeah. So you, you have lots of pieces uh, that give you a vague notion of some kind of group. So one of the common translations for the word is aggregate, which I believe is almost as meaningless in English as the, the term in, Kal in Pali is. Yeah. So there are terms that just take meaning in composites. So... 
the interesting composite now with the khandas is the second part, which is the upadana khanda. It's a, a khanda, a, a, a dimension or an aspect of my experience in as much as it is grasped at. Yeah. Now, if you have a vision of, uh, of freedom, then you have people who are grasping at the aspects of their experience. These people are unfree. And if you have a vision of people who are free, then these people still experience khandas. A free human being is not somebody who doesn't feel anymore or who doesn't have any perceptions anymore or who doesn't have any sensitivity anymore or any body anymore or any consciousness anymore for that matter. It's just somebody who has stopped grasping at these individual aspects of experience. So the upadana bit is the really crucial bit in the khandas, which distinguishes a free human being from a human being that is still in the snares of suffering. I'd like to speak about four types of upadana which are mentioned in the suttas and are greatly uh, explained later in the commentaries because I think these four cover much of our identifications and much of our attachments. Let me name them and then try to tease out the significance of these uh, categories. The first one is uh, a upada an upadana that is connected with sensuality. It is uh, kam upadana. Kama means both sense object, it means sense organ, and it means sense enjoyment. Yeah. This is really unfair, isn't it? They have three really difficult complexes and they are used with one term. But I, it's very easy to understand why this is the case, because they all hang together. Yeah. If you do a lot of sense pleasure, you will get habituated and you will get attached. And to be able to get attached, you need to have a sense object in the first place, which you preferably enjoy. Then you will repeat the procedure. The process will lead to attachment. Very simple. So, for convenience sake, Grasping at sensuality is the most healthy, it's the most normal, it's the most developmentally sane attitude to a, a world of um, tactile, gustatory, olfactory, auditive, visual uh, objects. It's what we do to feel good. It takes us some time to sort out our sense function. Um, most of you I would expect this have successfully completed this process and by the time we're kind of grown up and have sorted this out we have a fairly strong pattern of habit that seeking particular types of sense contact sense experience sense pleasure provides us with a feeling of well-being a feeling of comfort a feeling of gratification of pleasure this is the most normal thing it happens in the world. Unfortunately, it doesn't make us free. Yeah. But that's the healthy version. Yeah, there are unhealthier versions which we are uh, not going to go into tonight. So, grasping at things that make me feel good, that things that give me sense gratification is the most normal thing. It's the most easiest way to find happiness. The Buddha, by the way, had no doubt that this provides happiness. 
He said, the problem with this is not that it doesn't provide happiness. The problem is, A, that this is a happiness that doesn't last, and B, it comes at the price. Also, that's in the footnotes, you have to increase the dosage because there is a habituation effect setting in. Yeah. There is the law of diminishing returns. Three pieces of cake just don't taste the same as the first bite did of the first one. Yeah. Psychologists have come to the very same conclusion. There is some devastating um, research done on... They, they don't speak of tanha and thirst and unquenchable nature of thirst. They speak of things like the fact that uh, incentive value, your capacity to want something or to find something attractive, and your capacity to actually receive gratification are two very different curves. You know, one has to do with your endorphin system and one with your dopamine system. That has some really significant disadvantages. It means you can get attached and addicted to almost anything because very soon after you enjoy something, your anticipatory longing for something becomes the sheer focus of your dopamine release rather than the actual gratification which produces the endorphin release. Yeah. This is very much the same message as the Buddha said, who says basically, however much you try to satisfy thirst, that thirst will be intrinsically unquenchable. However privileged you are, however powerful you are to get what you want, even if you do get it, it will not hit the spot. Or it will hit the spot increasingly less. Or it will hit the spot, but um, you will get bored of it. Yeah. Or to say it in Oscar Wilde, not exactly a Buddhist uh, word, you know, there's two tragedies. One tragedy is not to get what you want. The other, the real one, is to get it. So Upadana, in the domain of senses, in the domain of sensuality and sensory experience, and remember, this is not just things you eat and taste. It's not just sex and ownership. It's also things you can think and conceive of. So in Buddhist world, we have six senses, of which five are the outer senses. And what a taste is to your tongue is a thought to your mind sense, an image to your mind sense. So there is no transcendent in transcendence in mental experience, as is say um, in particular brands of Western uh, philosophy. Thinking is not intrinsically more transcendent than um, thinking thoughts is not more a transcend transcendent experience than than sinking your white teeth into a hamburger. Yeah. It's just a gradual matter of taste, but both are sensory experience in Buddhist terms. Yeah. Reciting Rilke poetry in a still afternoon in the forest while uh, a tender little bird is piercing the deep silence to make you aware of it is in no way more transcendent or less sensory than, uh, you know, Gobbling something up. So a relationship to the sensory world, the gratification that lies therein, and the attachment, in other words, the wish for us to keep seeking gratification by repeating the uh, co consumption 
or the appropriation or the ingestion or the owning or the marrying or the whatever activity we do to have it, enjoy it, experience it, is a very well-documented attempt to find comfort and happiness in this world. Uh, family values, ambition, societal affluence, all this hinges on that type of thing. Our societies are very in favor of this. Most Western societies particularly are encouraging of this as worthy pursuits. Only when things get a little abusive or addicted, then we, you know, society starts to frown upon our pursuit of pleasure via sensory uh, activities. From a spiritual point of view, I think some serious question marks have to come in there and say, you know, is there really an enough? Is, is, there, is there a level of enough in there? Yeah. Is there maybe, is this really reliable? Getting sensory enjoyments, whether that be mathematical formulas or hamburgers or 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 uh, racing horses or whatever um, or just pens i love pens or i love decent teas or i you know i love nice things i i still have a fondness for books you know i they take too much space and i can't afford all i want and i can't read all i have and you know there's lots of disadvantages of this i still love some of this stuff and i suspect you love things in your life and you derive some degree of gratification but there are moments when you think do they really make me as happy as as i expected they will if that is true why after i have already so many of them i want more if they did make me as happy as i anticipated i wouldn't really need more would i yeah you know, if if sex was really so satisfactory as it's made out to be, um, why why do we have to keep doing it? <laughs> you know, or owning things or doing. You know, why do we have to keep doing the stuff which we charge with so much expectation, which we uh, anticipate so much happiness to be coming from? Yeah, why is this? And some serious doubts may come up and say, well, actually, I've had so much of this. So much sex, so many books, so many places seen, so many nice people met. How much food have I eaten in my life? <laughs> you know, it's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I've eaten mountains of food. <laughs> why, do, why do I seriously believe that the next piece of food will make me happier than the previous pieces of food? Yeah. So there are some serious questions to be uh, to be raised in the equation that getting good stuff for my senses makes me happy. The next dimension of um, of upadana is the dimension of views. Dittupadana means um, I believe myself to be in possession of a particular type of understanding, a theory, a belief, a dogma. An approach, um, a magic piece of knowledge, an esoteric uh, initiation. I believe myself to be in possession of something that makes me superior. You know, I am in the know. 
That's what the Dityupadana statement is. I'm in the know somehow. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but I love to live in a world that I understand. It's not enough for me to enjoy something I would like to actually understand how it works. Even if it went wrong, I would like to know what went wrong. I hate it if my computer malfunctions, I try to figure out why, and then suddenly it functions again, and I haven't figured out why. I really hate that. (laughs) I'd like to live in a world where even if things go wrong, I am in the know, I can figure it out, and I'm be prepared for the next time. If it just suddenly works again without me having an idea, it's a slight to my, you know, narcissistic little God, God feeling, God at the keyboard there, yeah? So I'm very aware that this thing does things not just against my will, it does it without my knowledge, you know? It goes off and it comes online again and I am not really in charge here. <laughs> Even my computer does that to me. I haven't told you about my body yet. You know? So I don't like this. You know, The part of me that likes to, to be safe and likes to be in the know likes a world that I understand. So a ditti is something that gives me the sense I understand. The ditti goes by many names. View, opinion, ideology, theory, hypothesis, belief. Um, stratagem, savvy, uh, competence, knowledge base, tons of stuff. Interesting Buddhist teachings have identified a few ditties that are particularly pernicious. The Buddha was very down on people who denied conditionality. So, The textbook example for the denied causality in my days is called Shit Happens. It means things just happen and nobody's responsible. Yeah? I know this wasn't the initial meaning of that statement. It was meant to comfort that bad things happen even to good people, that you can do everything right and still get back pain and so forth. This is probably how it was meant. But anything that denies conditionality, namely that there are contingencies on which this is based, that there are stuff that is causal in Effect, affecting consequences. That's where the Buddha was particularly down on. He had uh, no patience for determinists. Yeah. He was quite clear that things operate in this world according to conditions. Now, conditions are, you know, they're not always monocausal conditions. If you have a pot plant and you have earth, a plant, water, you, this plant needs warmth, it needs light, uh, and then it can grow. So you have a seed to start it, you have earth, water, warmth, light. These are the conditions for the plant. None of these conditions brings about the plant. Even the seed won't do it alone. I have a whole collection of seeds at home which won't do anything because I haven't planted them. So seeds alone don't do the plant. They need conditions in an interplay. Now, the falling away of any of those conditions kills the plant. No light dies. No water dies. No earth. Yeah, you can fudge a bit, you know, with cellulose and fake fabrics and so But it needs something to be in there, yeah, to hold nutrients. 
no seed, obviously no plant. So these conditions coming together bring about the plant. Neither of these conditions is capable monocausally to produce the plant, but the falling away of any single one of these conditions kills the plant. Yeah? That's conditionality. Now the Buddha uh, felt this was a really crucial principle in our experience, and if we deny this principle, we are um, living. In, we are prone to many empirical wrong conclusions. So investigating and acknowledging conditionality was for him uh, a prime task. You know, he was a very good scientist in many ways. So a view, a, a ditu padana, is something that. Uh, gives me a sense of superiority. And amongst views um, he felt were very pernicious is the view that denies this conditionality principle. In other words, that stops me from investigating further into the conditions that bring about something that I may feel is valuable or I may feel is unwholesome. <coughs> so if I stop the inquiry process because the view stops me to do so, because I believe um, in magic, or I, I believe in an omnipotent God, or I believe in uh, the intrinsic evilness of people with a certain color of skin. Um, all this stops me from actually acknowledging deeper degrees of reality. Now we do a lot of views. Views make us feel safe. You know, we, we have views about ourselves. We have views about what's healthy, we have views about what's fair, we have views about what's... You know, we have tons of views, and many of these views are not actually there because they're so accurate. They are there because they give us a feeling of being in the know. Yeah. And this feeling of being in the know, sometimes um, it's, not even a f it's not even a view that we're in a good place. Some of the views we may hold uh, th give us a place that is a bad one. You know, we're at the bottom of the pile. We're losers. We're victims. And still, we may find comfort in this view because it orients our life. Because it allows us to be safe in a place. Okay, I got a bad role here. I'm the runt of the litter, but I at least know where I belong. For many of our views, it would be it would be quite understandable to attach to good views, yeah. views that make us feel superior. Great, I'm God's gift to this world. You know, you're really privileged. Yeah, that might be a view to attach. But unfortunately, many of us find, if we introspectively look at what's going on in our mind, we find we hold views about ourselves in which we are not good people, in which we are people that are deficient, that are victims that uh, hold evil traits, that are possibly incapable of loving, uh, that are intrinsically hating all other humanity. Save my dog. Yeah. We hold all kinds of views. We encounter all kinds of views. And um, many of those views are absolutely making us feel miserable. Also, we, by identifying with views, we become very prone to be attacked. If people attack our views, we feel personally attacked. You know? If I happen to be of one political persuasion and somebody says something against this persuasion, I feel personally slighted because I have identified with that particular position. So identifying views 
uh, with views is a really risky business. It's going to hurt. I feel personally slighted when people criticize a view because I am identified with it, they criticize me. Instead of criticizing an idea I find plausible, it feels like these guys are just attacking me. Yeah. So we often find um, that such attachment does hurt. If you want to know about the degree of identification with the view, uh, Notice how it feels when something you have said is just being disproven, preferably in public. <laughs> um, if your view claims accuracy and you're being disproven in your view, uh, in your wish to be accurate, and then you should applaud that now the greater degree of accuracy is won, although at the expense of your particular view. If you feel like you want to defend this view, or if you hope that nobody has noticed that you have just made a fool out of yourself, then your degree to hope that nobody has noticed that you've just been disproven, or your degree to defend something that has proven to be wrong, is directly proportional to your degree of attachment to view. Now, views and attachment to views don't just come about through deliberate adoption of ideology. Many of the views we, we hold or harbor are views we have passively acquired. We have lapped up with mother's milk, so to say. We, they're just unquestioned little biases we've taken up from our societies, our subcultures, our peer groups, parental, uh, family influence, um, Tons of our most unhealthy views will have been passively absorbed and not actively acquired as ideological, stubborn uh, adoption of a view. It, it'll, much of our views and the, the negative consequences of these views come about through laziness of thinking, through comfort-seeking, just mutual affirmation, seeking out people who don't challenge these particular views. I just hang out with people who think the same way and we just mutually, you know, pat each other's backs and scratch each and feel good. Yeah. Um, and that is probably the deeper way we come to views. Now the Buddha felt that views, particularly the oldest start of Buddhist teaching, are really down on views. They say because of views all conflict comes about. Because of views we do not deepen our inquiry. Because of views we enter into doubt. Because of views we enter into quarrels. Because of views we enter into a hardening of our hearts and uh, stop or minimize the process of learning. Often we find out about a view when this view somehow is contradicted by somebody in our presence. It's like on a boat and you're kind of you're hitting the reef, you know, below the waterline. You find somebody who just something you felt was unquestionably shared with the rest of humanity, and then you find out that somebody just doesn't hold this view. And your initial response often is disbelief, dismay maybe anger, uh, often you try to immediately invalidate this person, insane, mad, unreasonable, nuts, yeah? 
should be locked up. Um, we become aware of our own view by encountering somebody who challenges that. That's why traveling is such a big thing. You know, we go to places where people in large masses do things totally contrary to our customs and our unquestioned reason, what we think is normal, reasonable, plausible, the sensible way of going about things. That's why travel is great. Suddenly you realize that people eat all kinds of different things. Or I have found out that uh, Northern Americans don't seem to have much of a culture of soft-boiled eggs. You have l <laughs> yeah. So looking for an egg cup in this uh, has proven quite an experience. <laughs> so I understand that you have a great affinity for eggs, those of you who are not vegans, and that you prepare them in a number of ways, but soft-boiled eggs don't seem to have a statistically relevant <laughs> consumption in this way. So, you know, you find out little things like that. And I thought myself quite normal in a world population that eats soft-boiled eggs all over the planet. I was just assuming Japanese would do that, Aborigines would do that, you know, Celtic monks would do that, and Buddhists would do that. But I find out there are predilections, and uh, that means the the um, the availability of egg cups is is not cannot be taken for granted <laughs> in North American households, as I've learned. Yeah. If I do you injustice, sorry, but that's my current standing of my, my current level of understanding. Uh, you may find out more dramatic things uh, in traveling to other countries. How people relate, you know, what they find uh, is decent decorum or polite clothing or um, how big the toilet doors are on your toilet cubicle you know are they made so that you can talk with your neighbor or are they made so that you don't see anything of each other yeah and depending which one you think is normal you might find the other one slightly disturbing yeah <laughs> so uh, traveling is a great way of learning about not just other people's views that's beautiful and important and enriching, but often you find out about your own views. You, know? you need to go somewhere else. You need to meet the other because you become aware of what you have actually already acquired, but not consciously acquired or consciously held. Only if you've met the other and become aware of your held position, um, you can make a real informed choice. You know? The next one, of the forms of grasping or identification is about method, about practice, about ritual, about virtues, identified virtues. Um, it's called sila vata upadana. Sila is generally a term with positive connotation in Buddhist psychology. It means virtue or ethic uh, and denotes wholesome ethical behavior. Vata means a religious duty and a duty that bestowed purity or that was meritoriously effective or that was deemed to be um, connected with purification or, or appropriateness. In a cosmological understanding of the world, uh, you have to do lots of these things to keep petitioning the gods in the right way, to keep your society harmony, harmonious, 
uh, to make sure the right ones marry the right ones and uh, you pay obeisance to the right guys and so forth. Yeah? In a cosmological world order, everybody has to play along. There is no individualism in a cosmological world order. So people who don't play along are not just doing their own thing and we can leave them to it because it's their choices. People who do their own thing are not upholding the cosmological order. They are therefore a threat to the whole of society. So cosmological societies have usually taken a dim view on deviance, on people who are doing their own thing. So the Buddha is at the verge of such a cosmological order and actually ethicizes a cosmological order by using cosmological terms like sila or like dharma, duty, into principles that underpin our phenomena phenomenal reality. So he is a key figure that shifts from a cosmological understanding of the world to a psychological understanding of the world. So our third type of attachment is an attachment that is about method and technique and strategy and skill. Yeah. In the days of the Buddha, Silavata Paramasa or Silavata Upadana was deemed to be the ritualistical and magical beliefs generally of people of other religious traditions. So the Buddha has made fun of Brahmins who felt that they, uh, Brahminical people who felt that they could purify themselves by bathing in the Ganges and claim, you know, the crocodiles and the fish and the frogs would by that logic be the purest of beings because they're all the time in there. Yeah. So he has criticized forms of ritual and generally ethicized ritual. And so the, you know, rather than just bowing to the ten directions and paying obeisance to the ten directions, I'll give you some examples. The ten directions stand for your wife, your kids, your superiors, you know, your spiritual folk, and paying obeisance to them is not just bowing, but actually listening to them and looking after them and taking care of them. So he, he has taken the principle of paying obeisance to the directions of the, uh, the uh, what is it called, the zodiac, but symbolizing differing groups of people in which you have, with which you have social relations. So he's done lots of this stuff. The grasping for at techniques and methods and approaches is very common these days. So we find safety, we find uh, identification by um, doing particular things and believing them to be effective in producing freedom or happiness or deliverance or competence, well-being. So generally we do that with things that are useful to us. So we become missionary about stuff that has been useful to us a particular diet, and then we recommend that diet. Yeah. A particular remedy for something, medication, uh, practice. And then we become obviously fond of this. We keep doing this. People ask us, we tell them what has helped us. And then something may happen. Instead of just telling them that it has helped us, we tell them what they really should do if they're serious about what they want. Yeah. And in the next stage, we tell them, unless you're willing to do this, I don't take you serious as a meditator, as a vegan, as a political being. Yeah, You really have to do this. That's the only thing that helps. 
Initially, it was the thing that helped, and then it was the thing that should help everybody, and then it was the only thing that helped. Yeah? This is a classic escalation of an attachment. We wouldn't call it that way. Generally, we call it loyalty, consequence, radicalness. <laughs> yeah. We have all kinds of pretty words to identify an increasing obsession with one particular aspect of experience. Remember years and years and years ago in England, as a young novice, we had people coming from all walks of life to us, and there was a big debate about fox hunt. And um, the Buddhists apparently are peaceful people. They think ahimsa, harmlessness, is important, so they kind of meditate and don't steal and hit each other and try to be nice. And this uh, radical fox hunt saboteur uh, came to their monastery and was a really nice guy but until he kind of got stuck on this notion that if these Buddhists were serious about their non-violence, they should be really out there sabotaging this bloody ritual of the British fox hunt, yeah? where you have animals, they look like dogs, but they're called hounds, chasing a poor thing that cannot hide because they have filled the holes in and then they do some bloody ritual at the end if the hounds have torn the thing to pieces. So any decent self-respecting Buddhist, you know, if they're serious about their harmlessness, has to be basically out there sabotaging the fox hunt. Otherwise, I'm not going to take you serious as harmless Buddhists. Yeah. That's a typical example of something that I, he probably have a lot of people who share his understanding. At the same time, what he demanded as being the sole touchstone of harmlessness, namely, uh, you know, the derailing of fox hunts by uh, making the dogs crazy, by spraying things on the ground and putting stuff there that made them go wild and lose the trace of the fox. What he felt was the only real thing to prove harmlessness somehow felt for most of us slightly slightly off center yeah. so that this is a little practical example of probably something you may find in your own life or not too far from you. You see people finding something that helps them and then they go slightly off. They may become a little dogged initially, a little eccentric, and then a a little missionary. And then, you know, lost somewhere. So, if the first of the attachments is feeling good by having experience, if the second of these attachments is feeling good and safe by having the right take on it, then the third type of attachment or grasping is by knowing the right trick, you know. We got the right technology. We're technology obsessed. You have a great guy in this country. He's uh, um, not often quoted on Buddhist meditations retreats. He's a um, cryptologist. And if what he says would come from a Buddhist meditation teacher like myself, it wouldn't have much value. But if it comes from a cryptologist, it means something. So the guy says, uh, if you think technology is going to solve your problems... You have not understood technology. Worse, you haven't understood your problems. <laughs> yeah. I think this is something very s to be taken very serious. Yeah. Buddhists also have to understand that no method is going to make their minds free and happy. Just not. There is no technique, 
no method, no particular style of meditation that is going to make you free. This is crucial. If you have derived benefit, and I have derived benefit from methods, from specific techniques, approaches, meditation objects, I have, in fact, quite a few of them. Um, there's enough work left, but I am conscious that techniques, methods, approaches, styles of meditation have their deep value. And yet I am very, very clear that no amount of technology, methodology, meditation style is going to carry you right through to freedom. Yeah. They, play a pl they play a role, but they're not the most instrumental thing in making you free. There are people who have not taught any method of meditation, like people like Ajahn Chah, who is famous for not teaching a method. All his teaching was attitude and inquiry. And this is a man with considerable stillness of mind and considerable discipline and considerable relational skills. And yet he felt it was much more important to teach attitude and a structure rather than a method and a technique. I think Western people particularly are quite prone to be infatuated by the power of method and technique. Yeah. And that we accord disproportionate belief in the uh, efficacy of that. The last of the Upadanas, and then I will end, the last of the Upadanas is in many ways a sub-form of the Ditupadana. It's the attachment to the explicit uh, ideology of a self. Yeah, it's called Atta Vada Upadana, the attachment or the identification with a teaching that posits a notion of a solid and intrinsically essential self at the core of its process. This particular <coughs> ideology is maybe the, um, the coarsest form of that. Buddhist teachings speak about attachment to self on many layers. Atavada Upadana is the all overt and um, reflectively corroborated statement that such a self is there and exists and is stable and solid and lasting, yeah. lasting through time and unchanging. Um, there are more subtle forms of this. Usually this isn't as explicitly and ideologically underpinned. Usually this is more inferred uh, than it would be a form of Sakaya Ditti, of personality view. And even more subtly, it might be what Buddhist teaching calls Asmimana, the conceit, the... Yeah, the conceit of I. Yeah. There is an interesting little passage which speaks about I-making and mind-making. Yeah. I-making and my-making. I relate to my experience or contents of my experience in terms of I-making and my-making. Uh, interestingly enough, object relation theorists speak in very similar ways. They also have a complicated and convoluted language, but they refer basically to the same process. You relate to something or somebody else in terms of self. Yeah? You make something to be your self-object. 
I'm just using you to be my audience right now, maybe. Yeah. So because I just enjoy the sound of my voice. Yeah. So I relate to you in terms of a self-object, and it's I pretend to talk to you, but actually I just listen to my voice. Yeah. <laughs> we often do this kind of thing. Um, as a French sociologist, which has coined the term of the gain of distinction, and we often do that. We gain distinction. We f corroborate our notion of self. We solidify our notion of self by comparing with others. Sometimes comparing others unfavorably with our superiority. Sometimes we do even one more. We compare ourselves unfavorably with others. Either way, we gain a distinction and thereby we reify, solidify our notion of self. Now the problem with self is it doesn't exist. So if you have a fiction, you need to do a lot of work to keep making it real, look real at least, for 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. So Atavada Upadana is the grasping at an attempt to solidify the reality of me as a self being the center of world and experience. So these four types of uh, grasping are very, very uh, powerful. They're not just happening to bad people or people who, uh, who don't meditate. Uh, if you're doing what we suggest you do in these days, you will probably have come across some of these forms. And in many ways the Buddha suggests four different contemplations that help us with loosening our grip on these forms of attachments. The first one is the contemplation that things arise. Yeah. The mere fact that things are not just there in their suchness, unchanging, uh, monolithically dumped into the world. Things have an arising phase. Yeah. Thoughts arise, moods arise, strength arises, sleepiness arises, views arise. So the focusing on the fact that things arise and then how things arise is one of the contemplations that can free us from upadana. The next one, predictably, is that things disappear. The word used is the word used for the sun when it goes under, atangama, the disappearance of things. So again, the contemplation is double. We notice that things disappear and how they disappear. So far, nothing dramatic, you know. We've been taught. You've taught. You've been taught about impermanence, arising, in breath, out breath, coming, going, increase, decrease. You know, you will have heard much of this. The next two are more interesting in many ways. The, the, the next contemplation is about gratification. It says you have to understand of anything that keeps recurring in your mind. What is its gratification? You get a pay off. What's the kick in there? you get something. The word for it is the asada, that which you enjoy, or that which is uh, your gratification. That's interesting. We're asked to uh, identify what we get from something. Even a bad pattern, say like getting angry, may yield something. You may find out that being angry, although it is an unpleasant physical sensation, although it has some social un un unhealthy consequences, although it is frowned upon by most people, actually you get something. You know, People obey you suddenly if you have a fit of anger. Yeah. Or you may feel your own power. Or you may be able to 
control situations with your anger. Yeah. So unless you're willing to acknowledge what you get from a particular pattern in your psychology, you are unlikely to give this up because you will know that you, you will, if you don't acknowledge to yourself that you get something, the no amount of harping about the disadvantages of this pattern will convince you to let go because you have a gain. You, know, you have a gratification. It does something for you. The psyche is dishearteningly economical. It doesn't do things that don't make sense. And, you know, the fourth of the contemplation, predictably, is the opposite. What is the disadvantage of things? What is the disadvantage of a pattern, an attitude, a recurrent impulse, an activity, a behavior? And by contemplating the danger that lies therein, the arising, the disappearance, the gratification and the danger or the price you pay, by holding these up against each other, your heart may incline to let it go. Unless you're actually contemplating that the pain is greater than the gain, that the solidification is in vain in, in the face of disappearance and dissolution and evanescence, you may not be willing to let go. You may not be willing to release your upadana, your grasping. When you hold up these contemplations, you r will recognize that you cannot hold on, and that things are ultimately maybe more painful than they are giving you gratification. Then, and according to my experience, only then are you actually willing to let go. Are you willing to seek an exit? Seek an alternative. So I'd like you forget everything else, but those four, please keep them. Yeah, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.